When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 46 of District of Conservation. Nothing provokes emotion and alarm today in America than any mention of fur or fur trapping. Celebrities, advocacy groups, and politicians have suggested wearing fur or acquiring fur in an ethical fashion is murder and evil. In recent years, it can be argued that the war on fur has reached great new heights. This year, we saw an unprecedented amount of states across the country take up bills banning predator hunting and the practice of trapping, namely in the states of New Mexico and California. Was such animosity regarding fur-bearing conservation always the norm? Not at all. And it can be argued that fur-bearer management and trapping do have a place today in the North American model of wildlife conservation. Our guest for the program, Jeff Trainer of Fur Bearer Conservation, will talk all about this. Here's a little bit about him. Jeff is a licensed trapper, on-call urban wildlife conflict consultant, associate certified entomologist, and wildlife control operator with over a decade of wildlife handling and conflict mitigation experiences. His wildlife services are offered to a myriad of various clients, including government, residential, commercial, and agricultural landowners throughout the Granite State of New Hampshire. He was awarded the 2017 Trapper of the Year Award from the New Hampshire Trappers Association and was also awarded the 2017 Communication Award of Excellence from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Commission for his efforts with the Fur Bearer Conservation Project. Jeff is also a certified trapper education instructor in the state of New Hampshire. His opinions and commentary on the benefits of regulated fur bearer management have been featured in both radio and print. Jeff dedicates his time not only to advocating for regulated trapping practices, but also bolster education on the traits and characteristics of fur bearing species, as well as non-lethal alternatives to nuisance conflict solution situations with urbanized wildlife. He passionately regards the importance of and advocacy for modern fur trapping, both as a regulated outdoor activity and as an integral component of modern wildlife management, biology, and conservation. As the founder of Fur Bearer Conservation, Jeff continues to create content for the project to help foster highly regulated trapping ethics and advocate for sustainable wildlife conservation efforts for future generations to enjoy. I think you're going to find Jeff's comments to be very compelling. If you are ambivalent or opposed to fur bearing, I think he's going to make a very passionate case about it. Here is Jeff in his own words and his efforts at fur bearer conservation. Thank you for joining District of Conservation, Jeff. We're really grateful to have you. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's quite an amazing uh, project you got there. It's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you've got quite a lot that you're doing yourself with quite an unpopular topic of fur bearer management, but we're going to kind of enlighten people differently and show a different perspective on that. So I'm glad you're going to talk about that issue. Sure. Absolutely. Why don't, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners and explain what fur bearer conservation is and illuminate your background? Sure. Yeah. So I'm, 
Uh, my name is Jeff Trainer. Um, I am uh, a born and raised uh, diehard, live free or dire from the from a great state of New Hampshire, uh, rural New Hampshire. Um, I'm an associate certified entomologist. So basically, my day job is uh, essentially four and six legged critters uh, in the pest control industry. Um, I got my start basically in the in fur trapping, basically living in rural New Hampshire. Um, trapping as a youngster along the riverways and, and areas around my home, uh, lots of cornfields and, and waterways and things. Um, so that's where I kind of got my start. Um, I went to college and basically, um, you know, at a time when the economy wasn't that great, and uh, I went for graphic design at a liberal arts college of all places. But um, at that time, there wasn't too many people looking for graphic designers, but uh, there was a shortage of people looking to wrangle skunks from under porches. So <laughs> that's what basically huh. paid the student loan bills when I was younger. And uh, it just kind of blossomed into this uh, pest and wildlife control kind of niche uh, area that is actually booming nationwide now. Um, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in the... Um, and basically the psychology behind wildlife management in general, and that includes obviously fur bearer management, um, fur bearers being any creature uh, whose hide or pelt holds marketable value and, as the name implies, bears fur. Um, so for the most part, that'd be species like badgers, bears, uh, beavers, bobcats, cougars, foxes, uh, muskrats, possums, skunks, raccoons, Coyotes, wolves, those are the popular ones. Um, but, of course, there's also some other ones like otter and things like that. So, um, basically, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting duality between um, pest control, nuisance wildlife control, and then the uh, regulated seasonal trapping of animals uh, for their fur pelts. And uh, it's amazing how much the, all of these things actually intertwine when you think about it in the 21st century. Yeah, I think many people don't know that and they don't really hear the term for bear or they think it's a really archaic practice, but I, I had no idea that, and, and you'll definitely explain more uh, later on in the podcast, but I had no idea that there is actually a rising popularity with it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. we, and it's, it's across the board. I think especially here in the Northeast, uh, we're seeing like this big locavore movement where people are far more interested in where their food comes from, where their resources come from. And when you think of subsistence hunting, you initially, your knee jerk is probably deer or maybe turkey. Um, but that includes uh, garments as well, such as fur. Uh, fur is a naturally uh, water repelling material. Uh, in most cases, it's naturally insulating. It's been used <laughs> since the dawn of our, uh, you know, civilization and inception. And, um, I think there was more people interested in uh, in utilizing those those local resources. Um, I'll be honest with you. We, for as much as the animal rights groups try to try to suggest that uh, trapping is a dying industry that's you know going the way of the dinosaur, we up here in New Hampshire at least we can't fill our trapper education classes fast enough. And it's an incredibly diverse group of people. It's not just a bunch of uh, overall clad. Uh, hillbillies from the hills that are getting into this it's it's families it's women it's children um trappers in new hampshire include doctors lawyers police officers nurses uh mothers fathers sons daughters i mean i could go on 
That's amazing. And maybe you guys are onto something and perhaps your location in New Hampshire, because it's a very unique state, uh, kind of puts you guys in a, uh, interesting, uh, situation up there because it's so far North, you're close to the Canadian border. It's typically colder, but I didn't think there was a fur bear Renaissance. That's very interesting. And I think readers or listeners listening will, will find that to be very compelling too. And would you argue that fur bear management, you kind of touched upon this, does extend to hunting in the sporting world, um, historically speaking, too? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, think about the inception and the dawn of our country uh, was founded on the backs of the beaver. Um, you know, early settlers and, and Native Americans, that was their bread and butter was fur pelts. Um, so it was really, you could consider fur trapping to be the, the very first trade of, of, of North America, essentially. Um, and it just kind of blossomed from there. It was a form of commerce. Um, it's, it's what founded this country. Um, and I think it, you know, we had a lot of popularity through the, through the sixties and seventies with the quote unquote fur boom, um, where fur was a very popular item, uh, to utilize. And I think, uh, somewhere in the, the, the mid to late eighties, it kind of just like dipped. And, um, I think people who are vehemently opposed to the usage of uh regulated usage rather of wildlife um kind of took a hold of that and uh it kind of really mellowed out and died off throughout the 90s and was really somewhat suppressed um but again i think up here it's especially here in the northeast we you know it's such an interesting dichotomy up here in new england because uh you can be in the most rural of rural areas in the mountains and then go 20 minutes south and be in in very urban uh, suburban areas. Um, so it's, it's very interesting, even on my trap line, when I'm trapping in the wintertime for fur, um, it's very interesting for me to go from thousands. And I do mean thousands of acres of mountainous terrain where there's nobody around. Um, and I can trap beavers up in the hills and then I can go down to the sloughs behind the local supermarkets, you know, in these waterways and marshes and trap muskrat and, and raccoon and things down there as well. Um, so it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, land that we have up here in the Northeast and, um, it's, it's changing demographically quite a bit. It's always shifting. There's a lot of people moving from other parts of the country. And, um, obviously, uh, those other areas of the country where maybe trapping and rural lifestyle isn't as prominent. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of pushback now politically. Uh, it's become quite a battle with people that have moved here and are trying to kind of change the mindset, if you will. Yeah, several states have done that, and I think we'll we'll chat about that in a, in a bit. Uh, but kind of going along the lines of the historical importance of trapping and fur bearer management, as you said, it's defined our culture for a long time. As you said, up until recently, and obviously there are a few people who are partaking in, the, in these activities, especially with uh, this decline in participation um, last century. What do you think explains this? I know, obviously, the attacks being leveled by advocacy groups, animal rights activists, uh, certainly contributes to it. But what would you say, um, in the grand scheme of things, is responsible for this decline in addition to these attacks? It's work. <laughs> to put it bluntly, it's work. Um, when you, and, and this isn't to step on the backs of, of anyone else in the hunting community, because all I think all hunting, uh, whether it's turkey, deer, fishing, whatever, um, it's all work. You have to put time into it and you have to be skilled at it, but trapping especially. So I set my traps November 1st up here in New Hampshire. 
I'm married to the woods every day uh, until probably April, uh, whether it's a north, you know, a nor'easter snowstorm or freezing rain or sleet or bright and sunny, whatever it is. Um, I'm, I'm married to those woods and I'm tied to those woods as long as I have traps out. So it's not like you can just go, uh, hunt your deer, you get your deer and you're done. You know, you're, you're, you're no longer involved with it. You, you catch the animal. And once you catch the animal, you have to bring that animal back. You have to process that animal. The, the hide needs to be removed. Edible meat needs to be removed. Um, then that pelt has to be processed. So you have to remove the flesh, you have to remove the fat, you have to uh, stretch that hide, you have to dry that hide, and then you have to decide whether you're going to tan uh, that hide for your own personal use or whether you're going to sell it to a fur buyer to be sold into a fur market. So um, there's just a lot of time that gets put into uh, trapping. And I think this day and age in our fast-paced world, um, I think that's just too much for a lot of people. Um, I, I, I know a lot of people that have gone through uh, trapper ed classes. Uh, I'm also a certified trapper ed instructor here in New Hampshire and folks that take my class, um, you know, I know there's only a certain percentage of those people that are actually going to go on to be diehard trappers. Um, and that's just because of the amount of work that gets involved with it. Um, it's, it's not something where you can just pick it up and leave it for the weekend. You know, you, you have a finite amount of time to process those animals and, um, with the sheer abundance of, say, for example, beavers in New Hampshire, they're a prolifically breeding rodent. Um, and as such with any rodent, um, you know, you're going to have higher numbers. You can, it's not out of the norm to trap, you know, five, ten beaver a week. And those animals need to be processed, especially if they're adults at 60 pounds a piece. You, you're lugging some serious weight and uh, you're handling some serious material there. So um, I just think there's a lot of work involved that I think a lot of people in this day and age, or, or at least in the last several decades, you know, people over time just haven't had that kind of time anymore. Um, and I think that's kind of uh, been a punch in the gut uh, for the trapping industry because it, you're, there's a lot of work there. Much like hunting. Yeah. It does entail, perhaps uh, issues related to access. I'm not sure if that's a problem for you guys up north. You probably do have to work around um, navigating the challenges, probably with private land access or public land access. I can see that being a problem. Um, and just more people are far removed from this industry or from this activity, as you had said, because everyone is more inclined to the cities or they're not really familiar with trapping or think that it's a, a humane practice or a ethical practice today. Right. So I, I think kind of like with conventional hunting, you do see some of the same obstacles wielded towards fur trapping as it is with regular hunting. But I kind of want to discuss a little bit about the commercial aspect I remember seeing something in the news related to cities passing ordinances, particularly New York City, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, where they are going to forbid the sale of pelts. And I know that's that would especially go after, and I know some people may be disagreeing that this is an uh, ethical business and line of work to be involved in, but a lot of those people employed in, in this uh, byproduct of fur trapping uh, tend to be immigrants, people don't know that, they tend to be families working together, uh, and they generate a lot in jobs and income and support local economies. So what do you see, especially with these ordinances, and then you see states like 
California and New Mexico, taking it even further to completely outlaw or set to outlaw uh, this practice altogether. But talk a little bit about the ramifications of what it does in terms of the business aspect and then um, things of that sort. Yeah. yeah, I mean, first of all, I can, I can tell you that all these fur bands that I'm hearing about in these city ordinances, um, I am utterly flabbergasted. Uh, and it's not just for the sense that uh, people have a have a concern with the uh, quote unquote ethical usage of uh, of fur bearing animals for something that is perceived as quote unquote vanity, like a coat or a hat or a trim on a on a coat or something. Um, but I'm just absolutely flabbergasted that in 2019 <laughs> you have you have trapping is not as popular as it used to be. Uh, where the wearing of fur. Uh, across the country isn't as popular as it used to be. And as a result, um, whether it's anecdotal or not, we, we have some of the most abundant uh, fur bearer species now than we've ever had um, with that decline. So with that decline, we're seeing uh, an increase in urban conflict with animals such as raccoons, such as skunk, such yep. as coyotes. These are all anim- these are all fur bearing animals that were once heavily pursued uh, by fur trappers, and um, these animals are now in such great abundance that um, you know they're, they're almost now regarded as vermin, or, or, or you know, and it's it just blows my mind that you're choosing 2019 where we're dealing with wildlife conflict uh, across the country in in in. in ways that we have never seen before. You're choosing this time to ban the ethical regulated usage of fur. Um, this isn't willy nilly someone going out and just, you know, bludgeoning and, you know, clubbing a bunch of animals, you know, willy nilly and skinning them and, and, and putting them up for sale. I mean, this is a regulated, heavily regulated, uh, heavily scrutinized activity. Um, and I'm just blown away that in a world where we're always concerned about, organic we're always concerned about where our food comes from now where we want to get rid of plastic bags and go to you know paper or whatever um, i'm just blown away that now is the time that we've decided to try to ban fur and i i think it's i think it's just completely uh completely ridiculous I, there's no merits behind it whatsoever other than the emotional knee-jerk response that um you know, we don't we don't want you using animals in any way. And if that's the case, you know, farmers better watch out because they're probably next. Uh, there are indications that that could be the case. I think this is more global, uh, but the U.N. is potentially exploring incentivizing people in different countries. I think they're going to test this in some countries. Maybe England, I think, will be the first. Uh, in- incentivize taxpayers to eat less right. meat. Yeah. So I have no doubt it'll, yeah, once they get rid, if they were to successfully get rid of fur trapping and fur bearing conservation efforts, they certainly will go after meat consumption. They continue to threat that. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the people that are driving that ship, I mean, there's, there's plenty of people that eat meat um, that, that, that are, are, are not, don't care for, for fur usage or fur trapping uh, because of what they've read on Google or the internet or from, you know, an animal rights website or whatever. But the majority of this scrutiny is coming from folks that really don't want any animal usage at all. Uh, to which case my response would be, you better buckle up because what you're doing is you're, you're driving a natural resource, something that is cherished and coveted right now. And you're driving it into just being a complete pest. Think about how we treat rats. Think about how we treat cockroaches. 
Uh, think about how we treat normal pests when they become an abundance. We, we hire someone to just wipe them out. Um, and, and no one's ethically using rat fur, okay? They're, uh, they're getting yeah. thrown away. Um, do you really want raccoons and, and coyotes and, and other uh, fur-bearing resources um, to be treated that way? That's, that's probably my biggest driving force with all of my advocacy is the fact that these animals don't have any place to go. So, you know, the, 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 the after effects are just, uh, are dangerous there. Once we start getting, look at what they were doing with Nutria, uh, in many parts of the country, including California, you know, they're seeking a ban on trapping. Meanwhile, they're dealing with Nutria issues and invasive Nutria, like, like, uh, like nobody's business. And that's again, another fur bearing resource, promote your trapping. Uh, and that can be a great, uh, assister with, uh, addressing your Nutria issues. Um, but so it's an interesting dichotomy that we have. That is true. Here in Virginia, we have a lot of coyote problems really close to Washington, D.C. And I think maybe one way to contextualize the problem with an absent of management practices in place is the fact that coyotes are known to go after pets. So maybe perhaps they will better understand the issue if something personally is affected uh, if they're personally affected by these uncontrolled coyotes or raccoons um, or foxes, depending upon what part of the, what region you live in. Uh, I can't trap a fox here in Northern Virginia. Uh, I think my County and the nearby County don't allow it, but if you go further out to the nearby counties, you're allowed to, if you have the proper licensure to do that. But I think, um, yeah, people just think they're really cute and cuddly. And I love admiring foxes and raccoons. I see them all the time <laughs> in my backyard. But if they're not managed, they can cause a lot of ruin, going into garbage cans, um, biting animals, giving them diseases, etc., things of that sort. So people don't see that until they actually feel the brunt of their input <laughs> or, or their impact um, in the area when they become overpopulated and not managed Absolutely. and trapping as a wildlife management tool as a conservation tool um you know it, it's our job uh to manage these species with moral wisdom and when i say moral wisdom look at uh, at least here in the northeast rabies uh is on the rise uh canine distemper we have uh, canine distemper issues up here, and we actually have a distemper strain that is uh, has just been found to be specific to our fisher, and uh, it was actually found in a raccoon as well, I believe, in Rhode Island. Uh, but to make huh. more to the point is the fact that these are density-dependent diseases. So these folks that say we don't need to manage wildlife, let nature take its course, let let nature figure itself out. Humans don't need to be meddling in this. Well. That's a primary example right there of how nature takes its course. When, when there's no management uh, and you have animals that have limited places to go with limited resources, uh, Mother Nature is going to come for her doer prop, doing proper. And uh, disease outbreak is just one of those things. And that's an indication. If you have heightened rabies and distemper issues, odds are pretty good you have a higher density of vectors that are passing that uh, disease, or that virus around. Um, so trapping can act as a suppressor to help kind of mitigate that stuff. And these are the things that people don't think about until they're already a problem. And then they have to hire some uh, commercial trapper to come in there and just wipe out or clean house and, you know, in these suburban backyards. And it's just, man, what a waste of the resource when, when you can just embrace regulated trapping and let trappers do what they need to do. 
That is very true. Yeah, because especially with wildlife officers having to deal with actual threats, uh, it's going to strain resources. I think that's a, a compelling thought there um, with respect to that. But you were talking about management and how it relates to conservation. People don't know, I think even in the hunting community, that fair, fur bearer management and trapping do fall in line with the North American model of wildlife conservation. Do you think kind of with people you've spoken to and people you've worked with or just uh, perspectives you hear, do you think that there is an interest within, let's say, hunters in your area or hunters you've talked to across the country, an interest in salvaging trapping and perhaps uh, educating people about it more? So for the longest time, um, you know, all of our hunting endeavors uh, were always relegated to these little niche boxes. So the bear hunters didn't like the didn't like the fur trappers because you know traps would be out in the woods and their bear dogs would potentially get caught in them or something and you know the turkey hunters didn't like the deer hunters and the you know we always had all this infighting you know uh for a very very long right. time everything was secular and especially trappers because when you think about the north american model it was based out of uh market hunting so we drove many species including most of our fur bears right to the brink of extinction, uh, to extirpation. I mean, think of the river otter, think of the beaver. Um, these are creatures that we just trapped and hunted out of essentially, for lack of a better term, greed, um, you know, to sell mm-hmm. health. And, you know, with the Teddy Roosevelt era of conservation mindset coming in, uh, what a lot of people don't realize, they look at trapping because trapping still is a somewhat commercialized um, endeavor, uh, people still look at it as, well, it doesn't fit the, mo- the American, North American model of conservation where we're, we're regulating everything. But what people don't seem to take into account is that not too many people are eating skunks like they are elk, but skunks <laughs> still need to be managed. You know, we still, uh, if anything, the skunk needs management more than the elk does. So, um, just because of their sheer abundance, their, their breeding habits, their ability to adapt to urban lifestyle. That's why I, that's why I say that. But uh, my point being is that wildlife managers, both nationwide and in state to state, uh, they, they cheer on and support trapping for several different reasons. But one of them is the fact that it falls into the tenement of the North American model because we don't want to be just frivolously wasting wildlife. You know, when we don't have trapping on the landscape, what do we do? USDA Wildlife Services comes out and they cull. And they're not yep. using the pelts. They don't have time to be skinning and processing skunk pelts. So those animals, again, it goes back to just a waste of the resource. And within the North American model, um, that's where that fits squarely, is that trapping is a conservation tool. We have a lot of endangered species. Piping plovers are a prime example, a beach ground-nesting bird. Uh, that is heavily preyed upon by abundant predators such as foxes, raccoons, skunks, possums, other egg eaters. Um, and they look to trappers to help mitigate that because there's more skunks and foxes on the land than there are piping plovers. And I could use that model for turtles. I could use that model for grouse. I could use that model for just a myriad of different critters. And then that's when it starts to trickle into the rest of the broader hunting community. So Think about Ruffled Grouse Society or the Wild Turkey Federation. You know, these guys, um, at least up here in the Northeast, we've really banded together with the camaraderie uh, because we've all recognized the important uh, 
stools of the leg that we, you know, legs of the stool rather that we all kind of help with um, to help prop up real hands-on conservation. So um, where we had these secular divisions in the past, I think now because of the animal rights uh, industry, I'll call it, uh, because of the scrutiny that's come uh, tenfold to all hunting uh, stripes, um, there's been a, a resurgence of, of a band of camaraderie up here in the Northeast. We, we're pretty tight with our deer hunters, obviously, mitigating um, coyote depredation on deer and things like that. So we're helping the coyote hunter, uh, the uh, deer hunters out a little bit. Um, but again, a lot of your uh, grouse and wild turkey and all these ground nesting birds. Um, Trapper really is kind of the pillar there because we're, we're taking, we're, we're, we're managing species. We're taking species um, that are both abundant and are not regularly hunted by, by hunters. Um, so there's, there's a recognition of the, of the benefit there. And, uh, and we've kind of really strengthened ourselves. I see a lot of, different interests here locally too. And I've talked to friends all across the country out West. There are different interests kind of coming together. Not everyone does sadly, because when politics is involved with um, how to go about prioritizing certain things over the other, certain people don't want to band together against incremental approaches to eating away at the hunting or fur trapping lifestyle. So I would say most groups are keen on, uh, working together with shared interests to stop any attack on hunting. Cause I'm of the philosophy. And I think most people view it like this. And I hope more do have this attitude that if an attack on one sector of hunting is successful, they'll definitely go after the other. So I, I'm in full agreement that I think different interests have to put aside their differences or tactics and band together, especially in areas where state legislatures have passed bans on different types of predator hunting, predator management and efforts like that. I would, I would encourage your listeners from around the country and, and frankly around the world, take a look at what has gone on in the Northeast United States in the last two decades uh, when it comes to both hunting, uh, hunting slash trapping, uh, conservation, animal rights, whatever you want to call it, politics um, is probably the better term. But take a look at what's happened up here. You know, it did. It started out as trapping. Look, we don't we don't care about your hunting. You go hunt your deer. That's fine. But trapping is, is just this horrible, vile uh, thing that we don't like. Uh, we're going to ban it. Okay, fine. Go ahead and ban it. Um, oh, by the way, we don't like bear hunting either. Uh, so we're going to come after that next. But again, your deer hunting and your turkey hunting, you're okay. But bear hunting and trapping, we don't like. And then the next year it was coyote hunting. So now it's bear, coyote, and trapping. And now it's <laughs> pretty soon they're demanding, uh, you know, written permission for every property you walk on for turkey hunters and the, the 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 popular what i would call in air quotes the popular more popular hunting you know deer hunting um turkey hunting uh these guys are like they're looking at it going you know this isn't just about trapping this isn't just about predator hunting this these people want it all and they're just taking it death by a thousand cuts as Stephen ranella has said in the past um you know, they're just taking it bit by bit and that it's working very, very well to nitpick and take these little bits and pieces out all over the place. And you're seeing it. And I think uh, we're wising up in the Northeast to it. I just hope the rest of the country can follow suit and recognize that this is a you're pulling the wool over your eyes. You know? A dire warning indeed. No, I think people are in groups like the Sportsman's Alliance, I would say, are really shedding light on that. They're tackling kind of these unpopular types of hunting 
or to the to the public, which they view as unpopular. I should correct myself. Uh, but I think groups like them are really sounding an alarm quite effectively about this. And uh, I hope other hunting groups that may not dabble with this activity do also band together, maybe in quiet and in behind the scenes they do, but uh, they're careful about not putting, let's say, their full faith or full support, I should say, behind it. But I, I think you talk to people privately in the hunting community and they say that, yeah, this would be crazy if you do this. So hopefully more, more groups will take Sportsman's Alliance lead uh, and, and do support these efforts because, like you had mentioned, it's going to be incrementally going after every type of hunting and then eventually they'll get to waterfowl and upland bird too because it's going to be inhumane <laughs> in their book as well You're to seeing, do that. This is where my my project, my website, Fur Bear Conservation, really comes into play because I am just so intrigued with the modern psyche, if you will, of, of people. Um, you know, it's wildlife management is about managing the needs of wildlife with the needs of people. It's not about hoarding or stockpiling wildlife. And what you're seeing, especially here in the Northeast, and I'm sure we're seeing it across the country. I just, I don't get off my hill with my mountain goats here in the Northeast too often. So, but here in the Northeast, what we're seeing is people are moving here and they, they want to see bears on their back deck in like the downtown cities. They, they want to see bobcats chewing on squirrels in their backyard because they, they want to treat the natural world as their own petting zoo. And the problem that I grab people oh. and say, you, it doesn't work that way. Nature doesn't work that way. And, and you can't stockpile wildlife. It, it just doesn't work. And well, the problem is that it goes way past animal rights at this point, And it goes to a cross section of the citizenry that, you know, really feels that any form of hunting regulated hunting or trapping or fishing or whatever, you're taking something from them. You're taking an opportunity away for them to view an animal. And I can understand and sympathize with that concern, but I can also sit there and point my finger and say that's an irrational concern. Because especially with trapping, again, we're dealing with very, very abundant species. There are season limits. There are bag limits. There are species we're not allowed to trap uh, or we have to release if we trap them because uh, they're, they're, they're threatened. Um, but bottom line is that there is this dramatic psyche shift in our, in our society where people just want to... Uh, view nature through a glass bubble and they, you know, they want to try and preserve it and they want to, you know, be able to take pictures with their cell phone from their, from their, uh, you know, breakfast nook in their, in their suburban homes and, and, and see bears and wolves fighting with each other in the backyard, like national geographic. And people just don't understand that it just doesn't work that way. And, and what you're seeing, if you just look at the headlines across urban cities, across the country, what you're seeing is exactly the fact that that does not work because you're seeing attacks, uh, you're seeing huge wildlife conflict issues, um, and we're not just talking about poor little Fluffy the cat being eaten by a coyote. We're talking about children being attacked. We're talking about bears breaking into homes. Um, I don't yep. say this stuff as a fear tactic. I don't say this stuff uh, to try and scare people. I say it that wildlife needs to be respected, but frankly, wildlife needs to be managed. And management doesn't mean decimation. I think that's the point a lot of us have been trying to make. I try to do that in my reporting, and I know people like you and, and all the prominent people who are talking about this and the science behind this say, 
a little management goes a long way, not only to reduce uh, animal human conflicts, but also to reduce uh, depredation or attacks or decimation of different wildlife. Because if you don't manage bears, for instance, aggressive bears are going to attack and potentially kill other bears, uh, for instance. So people just don't know that. And Disney, sadly, is greatly to blame <laughs> for this, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, they, it, it's a great you know thing to watch, but a lot of people see that. Or I think I saw a Twitter video. Did you see where some guy was help with a Chicago accent? This went viral on Twitter. Uh, was helping a coyote pup, and it's like, oh, did are you abandoned because some redneck shot your parents? And I didn't feel comfortable with him playing. And all these people commenting were saying, oh my gosh, it's so cute. Did you help it? What happened to it, etc. I thought a wildlife officer should have been responsible like maybe he could have helped with uh getting it to safety but like letting a wildlife officer like he could have called the wildlife officer and had them come and take the animal to ensure that it could have survived and i think reports were that the animal didn't survive but you see these videos and everyone's like oh my gosh it's so cute like i want to do this type of thing and like you were saying uh social media sadly gives this notion that these are cuddly animals and they're very cute don't get me wrong. I love cute animals, but they are dangerous too when when not properly handled with. And state law says if you can mitigate any conflicts with wildlife, do so. Like we see this in every state law. Right. And that, um, to yeah, do that. And, 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 a, and a little segue on that is, you know, you you had mentioned, you know, trying to get a rehabilitator. I'm I'm seeing in my research too that there's a lot of people uh, up here that are getting into animal rehabilitation, wildlife rehabilitation for the wrong reasons. Um, I can't tell you how many viral videos, quote unquote, I've seen where uh, these rehabbers, they're like wrapping, you know, full grown coyotes in, in blankets or they're, you know, nursing squirrels in their brassiere or something. And I'm just like, how do you expect to release that animal? Wait, you haven't rehabbed anything. All you're doing is hoarding it and treating it like a human baby. And you can't, there has to be that disconnect. You have to be able to have that off switch and say, this is nature. This is how nature works. And I think that the broader hunting community, whether you hunt for deer for subsistence or whether you trap, uh, you know, beaver for fur pelts or whether you, you know, go hunt waterfowl, whatever the case may be, we when you're in that world, you kind of recognize the, the laws of nature and you kind of understand it. You, you don't get that from a hiking trail um, or from a suburban backyard where raccoons are fighting over a dumpster. So, I mean, it's it's a very, very interesting uh, time to, to be in America here with everything being so polarized. Look at from politics all the way down to everything, you know, Facebook and social media and all this nonsense. And I do kind of feel a little hopeless that people are naturally are, are losing their minds. I mean, we have people now here, uh, actually they're across the country. Um, I've, I've kind of fell down this rabbit hole in 20, 2017 when I was doing a lot of research, especially on coyote management. Um, there are people that are now trying to just twist science. You know, it used to be, we used to be able to sit there and say, well, the science says this. Um, and now look at the humane society or look at some of these other project coyote, these, these organizations that are saying, well, the science shows the more the more coyotes you kill, the more they're going to breed. And yeah, not quite. doesn't quite work that way. Um, but this is what they're doing. They're testifying to this stuff. And the, the legislators who don't know any better are just taking it and running with it and saying, yeah, we don't need hunting because nature manages itself. Science says so. Well, 
if you talk to the people who came up with that science, you know, the people that actually did those studies, um, you're going to find uh, that most of their findings are being taken way out of context, and that's uh, equally as dangerous. Um, so we, we can't even rely on the science anymore. The, the big message is you have to do your research and do your due diligence to see what makes sense, you know. Absolutely, yeah. They're twisting a lot of scientific data, telling you you can't manage things. Um, when something reaches their carrying capacity, you still have to give it endangered or threatened species protections, as we've seen recently. <laughs> and it's like you cannot give something protections just because you politically benefit monetarily, especially uh, when you leave those protections in place and showcase that to your donors and ask them to donate money so you can protect them further. Uh, but people, yeah, and with endangered species, it's slightly off topic, but people don't want to see things recover or delisted and get off a certain list, or they don't want to see uh, the, this uh, conflict being reduced. Again, they, like you said, they want to see these animals in their back porch and play with them and take selfies. <laughs> exactly. The, the science is inconvenient, yeah, and it's, uh, it's disappointing, but hopefully more people, people like yourself especially, can refute that and provide all the evidence necessary to refute uh, to 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 impact people positively and to showcase like here's the actual science. This is why you need to manage. Yeah. And what do you think? What do you think can be better done to shed misconceptions about your industry? Uh, I've had beaver before. I got to sample beaver, beaver jerky earlier this year, <laughs> and it tasted really good. And I know people might be listening and thinking, "Oh my gosh, that's preposterous! Why would she eat that?" But do you think it's having people, and I don't recommend you eat skunk or anything of that sort for anyone listening, but for certain animals, and I've, I've tried coyote too. One of my friends who's a wild game chef, Jeremiah Doty uh, from Field to Plate, he's like, I'm going to make you try these different meats that are unconventional. So he's made me eat coyote jerky. He's made me eat beaver jerky and other things. Um, I don't know if it's exposing people and shedding misconceptions that you can, even if you trap an animal, you can even enjoy their meat if you want to, but you don't have to. Uh, but what do you think can be done? Is it a better job of storytelling? Is it bringing on people like yourself, experts to talk about it, the net positives, what it does economically for people involved in the business, how it bolsters wildlife management efforts? So what, do you, what, what tactics do you see succeeding in your efforts um, to get more people to not believe the misconceptions? Uh, well, first of all, I, I have to tell you that beaver, uh, beaver meat, um, all all crass joking aside, um, beaver, beaver meat is a staple for me. Um, really? Regular. <laughs> it's not even like a, oh, you know, this is something new and weird to try. No, I, I make jerky. I make uh, chilies. I make stews. Uh, mostly jerky. But, yeah, beaver, uh, in my opinion, is comparable to red meat. Uh, I just think it's amazing. Uh, I will also add that I, I've eaten muskrat, uh, porcupine, woodchuck, raccoon, possum, um, there's not too many fur bearers that I won't eat. Uh, most of them are the predators. So I've, I've never had coyote. I, I don't know if I can bring <laughs> myself to that. Just, uh, being one that handles so many on a regular basis. Um, uh, I won't eat skunks. I won't eat otters, uh, which, uh, it's been rumored that not even the native Americans would eat otters for whatever reason. I can tell you the, the flies is hmm. convincing to, to eat water for whatever reason it's on but um but the grazers definitely are absolutely edible and i encourage people uh who decide to get into a locavore type trapping movement if you're going to use the fur pelt 
definitely if it's uh, if it's safe to eat, if it's safe to uh, use, definitely use the meat as well. Obviously, being a rodent, um, you want to be careful of diseases. Uh, you want to check the liver for spots, uh, things like tomeria and other diseases you want to be wary of. Of course, obviously, rabies is another one uh, that you just want to obviously be wary of. But um, I definitely, when handled properly, uh, many, many fur bearers can be edible. And uh, like I said, are, are regular staples for me, beaver especially. Um, but as far as, as far as, uh, you know, getting the message out there and, uh, and promoting this stuff, I, I have to be honest with you. When I first started the fur bearer conservation project, I was very uh, full of vinegar and uh, zest. And I wanted to get out there and beat the pavement and spread the message. And um, I, over the years, I've become bitter. Um, I've become incredibly bitter. You get so many hateful comments and just people that are just out of their minds. Um, I've, I've really turned it around and said, you know what? Don't listen to me. You're going to see for yourself. Um, I think in the trapping community, we have, we can kind of afford to be a little arrogant because even when you ban trapping, go ahead and ask Massachusetts, uh, how banning trapping worked for them in the nineties. Um, you know, there we're always going to be needed to some degree um in massachusetts i want to say in two and a half years following their ban on 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 uh beaver trapping on, on using lethal traps and foothold traps their beaver population expanded from eighteen thousand to almost fifty-five thousand. wow uh reports from audubon magazine they did a big story on it back in 1999 um and what you had was you lost so Homeowners, you know, where they would hire trappers, fur trappers would go in. They trapped the beavers during, you know, during the profitable time for their fur pelts. So the state got some license revenue out of that. The trappers got their beavers and the landowners got rid of nuisance beavers that were flooding their driveways and properties and chewing down their trees. After the ban, what they found happening was homeowners frustrated were going out and they were busting dams open in the middle of winter when there's ice out on the pond and what was happening was you had all these reptiles, all these endangered species that were hibernating in those ponds and you drop the water level in the dead of winter. Guess what's going to happen to all that wildlife? It's dead. It's not going to survive. And the beavers themselves, if they're trapped inside that lodge, um, again, they're, they're not going to survive. So again, it's one of these situations where do you want to manage a species for a resource or do you want to manage it as a pest? Um, the Audubon Society, even in California in 1998, when they came out with Proposition 4, uh, the Audubon Society was one of the biggest uh, proponents of a of, of Prop 4 to get rid of the foothold trap because they had all kinds of endangered birds that were being eaten by red fox. And the red fox population was so high, they promoted trapping because, again, the ends justify the means. It's a balance. It's a management tool. Um, so... I can be a, a little bit of an arrogant, you know, person about this because my services are going to be needed whether trapping is banned or not. You're still going to need me. Um, and it's just a matter of how you want to deal with that. Um, I think on our end, at least we've, you know, in the trapping industry, we've, we've really uh, stepped up uh, public, you know, public, public speaking and, uh, the trapper education classes are a great way to get everybody involved because people can see firsthand what we're doing instead of watching some video online of somebody poking a coyote in a trap with a stick or something foolish. Um, they get to see what we're doing. They get to see how it works. 
Um, and then, of course, the wildlife control industry is a, is a pillar of that support as well because, you know, trapping is implicated to to uh, deal with these mitigation issues, whether it's raccoons in your attic in, in downtown Chicago or whether it's coyotes uh, on a farm in, uh, in Georgia. I mean, uh, you know, there's wildlife control trappers that are needed uh, throughout the country and they're utilized. And I think that's also another avenue. I've, I've educated countless landowners. And that's the thing is that when we get into a political debate, um, politicians usually look at the fact that there's more people that make noise against trapping than there are trappers. So therefore that seems to suggest that trapping is a minority activity and therefore isn't important, but they're not taking into account the countless landowners, clients, uh, municipalities, towns, cities, all these people that basically contract trappers to mitigate abundant fur bearing wildlife issues. So, um, you know, it kind of ebbs and flows. Um, I really hate to see it, a ban come up. I'm scared, you know, uh, of a ban coming through because in the end, it's not going to be me that's punished. The, the activists and the people against it think they're punishing me. It's the wildlife that's going to be punished. And, um, I think that would be very, very unfortunate because I want uh, my future generations to be able to enjoy the same abundant wildlife that we uh, currently are, are allowed to enjoy. You know, I can go out in the woods and track mink and uh, watch that red fox with a beautiful fur coat run through a cornfield in February and, um, you know, see raccoons foraging on the riverbanks. I mean, these are all beautiful, beautiful things that I enjoy emphatically, and it's why I'm, why I'm so uh, passionate about out spreading a message, but um, but bottom line is that it's ultimately going to be up to society. What's the social carrying capacity? We know what the carrying capacity of wildlife is. The question is, what's the social uh, carrying capacity? And when are people going to have enough and recognize um, that that you know just the the constant slaughter of, of, of abundant wildlife isn't the way to go? We should bring in people that are going to respect those animals when they trap them respect and use as much of the animal as possible rather than just throwing it in a roadside ditch. Yeah. A lot of people think this is done out of lack of concern or lack of, uh, reverence for what they're pursuing. Kind of like when you go hunting, you're not just doing it out of bloodlust. You're doing your part to help cull a particular species and then you're not going out and waging a full-out assault on the whole entire species. I think that's certainly um, something that should be communicated. But, yeah, you're doing – yeah, go ahead. Say, and the thing, too, is that uh, what a lot of people don't take into account is the fact that once you start getting about fur bears in abundance, like, uh, say, muskrat or uh, raccoons, uh, there's no state biologist uh, out there taking head counts on how many raccoons we have on the land. They're relying on trappers. They're relying on trapper mm -hmm. reports. Uh, because most states mandate that you fill out a report every uh, every year when you're trapping. So we're working hand-in-hand hand, uh, with wildlife uh, management agencies from every state. Um, we're kind of the eyes and ears and boots on the ground for uh, a, a cross-section of wildlife that otherwise doesn't get a lot of attention from the public at large. So um, that's another cornerstone of of, of promotion there is the fact that wildlife agencies would be completely in the dark uh, without trappers on the landscape, uh, you know, kind of keeping, keeping things in check. They do play an integral role, um, especially 
in this increasingly urban type of landscape we all find ourselves in. And you guys do serve a purpose. And that's why I wanted to bring you on the podcast to explain it, especially because you seem to be younger too. And, 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 and you don't really see much of millennials or people kind of on the, the lower end of the in-between between millennials and Gen Xers uh, discuss this because you think it's just like an old old man's type hobby. It's, it's relegated to the past, but it's interesting to see people like yourself who are on the younger end uh, keeping this tradition alive. I wanted to also ask you, what can people do to best support your efforts and to connect with you to learn more about how to get involved, how to start in fur bear conservation efforts, things of that sort. So what can people do? Um, well, first of all, I, I would say, um, you know, I take the spotlight off me first of all and say, talk to and join your local state uh, trappers association. Uh, I, I believe every state has a trappers association of some degree. So I strongly encourage you to speak up with them. They're, most trappers associations from state to state aren't just in it for trapping of fur. They're in it for the conservation of these fur bears. Um, and they, they're very supportive of that. Uh, they have a lot of scientific data. They have a lot of resources and connections. So definitely uh, check out your local uh, uh, trapping association. Uh, for me personally, you can you can find me on furbearconservation.com. Uh, that is my website. I am the founder and editor-in-chief. Um, there's just a plethora of resources up there. It's kind of like this um, always evolving entity. Uh, it, it, it's become so much more than it was when I first started. It was mostly just a podunk blog to talk about trapping when I first started, and now it's become this... This, this crazy uh, project, think tank, if you will. Um, but there's tons of resources there. You can hit me up on there. You can uh, email me uh, or you can sign up for the newsletter where I send out my, my weekly uh, columns that I write um, or I have guest authors on. Um, I work with a network of contributors from around the country. Most of them are biologists or wildlife management professionals. Uh, so I can go right to the source when I need to uh, discuss a scientific endeavor. Um, so I would say, yeah, hit me up at furbearconservation.com. And the social media accounts too? Yep. Well, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I am on Instagram, uh, both as Furbear Conservation. You can also find me personally on Twitter uh, under my my regular name, Jeff Trainer, uh, Associate Certified Entomologist. Uh, that's my, my Twitter account is kind of like my my pest and wildlife kind of world, whereas fur bear conservation is primarily focused on the fur bears and the wildlife control industry and uh, fur trapping. Very good. I'll be sure to include everything that you listed in the show notes so people can find you. And, and I think social media promotion will also help too, but you've covered so much ground on just the history of fur trapping the merits behind it, why people do it, and just kind of a renaissance. I, like I said, I had no idea that there is a renaissance, and I hope more people will kind of learn the history, kind of set aside the emotion, and really be open-minded to this type of activity because it does go a long way with wildlife management, conservation efforts, and really educating people about just their surroundings more so that they're more attuned to how things are processed, how things are harvested, how meat is uh handled and things of that sort or how you can see these wildlife species thrive and things of that sort so it's really good that people like you are putting content out there shedding light on this and encouraging them to 
kind of widen their horizons uh, with this centuries old or thousands of centuries, thousands of years old type practice. And uh, do you have any final parting thoughts of before we conclude the interview? Um, you, you know, uh, just, you know, I think the, the broader hunting community needs to stick together. I think we're all in it uh, for similar reasons, uh, which is the conservation and beautification of our natural resources, whether they be fur bearing or, or, uh, or otherwise. Um, so I would just say uh, support these, uh, these endeavors. Uh, you mentioned Sportsman's Alliance, a great organization. Uh, you yourself with the outreach you do is, is awesome. So um, yeah, my message would be just uh, even if you're not a hunter, um, you can still be a conservationist and support these activities without being one So, um, or, or taking part in the activity. So support is what's needed. Um, and, uh, and I would encourage people to do so and uh, look outside of their, their iPhone boxes, if you will, <laughs> and, uh, and open their minds to, uh, to, to a natural way of life. Wonderful. That is so, those are great words. Thank you, Jeff, for coming on District of Conservation. You really did provide a lot of tantalizing information, and I hope people do take away great, great thoughts about it. Much appreciated. Much obliged. I hope that was a thought-provoking episode that challenged you to think beyond conventional wisdom or challenged you to open your mind and kind of hear this other perspective about this thousands-of-year-old practice that has sustained many cultures, many countries across millennia. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe download this episode and leave us a review if you feel inclined every download subscribe or review helps us go a long way in reaching more people you can follow us on facebook instagram and twitter to never miss an episode to learn more about what's going on in public policy here in the washington dc area and across the country and to see who future guests are Thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed listening to Jeff here on the podcast. We're going to bring on more guests who offer thought-provoking topics and perspectives. Until next week.